countries are exploring ways to shift their energy sources from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but how do renewable energy ambitions affect donor-funded rural electrification efforts in Pacific Island countries? What is the experience of small island states when it comes to power sector reform? How can Fiji move towards a more sustainable future for its energy? These are some of the many questions answered in this panel on energy at the 2018 Pacific Update. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started if everybody uh, is prepared. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today for the energy session in beautiful Suva. Uh, my name is Nate Clayville. I'm the chief economist for American Samoa, and I'm happy to be able to, to chair this session. I'm very honored to be here. Uh, while the focus of my work has been on macroeconomic impacts of public policy with an emphasis in tax and revenue, I actually began my career as an energy economist. So this is exciting to be able to be here and to chair this session. It's a, it's a topic that's still close to my heart. Uh, as is the case with all economic issues, energy research is made up of a diverse collection of often competing concerns and potential solutions. Although the Pacific countries have made great strides in creating and adapting, uh, adopting um, energy efficient and alternative energy technologies, the region still lags the world in terms of average percent of final energy consumption that comes from renewable energy technologies. So we certainly have some work that still needs to be done, and I think that this is going to be a uh, an exciting meeting to be able to listen to some of the the, the research that's being done in the area. Uh, we have three terrific presenters today from three brilliant individuals with a diversity of backgrounds. Uh, though I'm sure you are all well aware of the status quo format, let me just remind you that each speaker is going to have their allotted time to present about 20 minutes. Uh, with all three presenting, uh, with all present, uh, present presentations running back to back followed by a question answer at the end. So we'll kind of hold those questions to the very end there. Uh, so without further delay, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our first presenter. Uh, I think most of us know Dr. Matthew Dornan, correct? He's the Deputy Director of the Developmental Policy Center at the Australian National University. His research focuses on economic development in the Pacific Islands and Papua New Guinea, and includes work on infrastructure access, development, and regulation, especially in the energy sector, foreign aid, and climate uh, change financing, and most recently, research on labor mobility. So, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Matthew Dornan. Uh, thank you, everyone, and thank you to my cheer squad behind me. Uh, so, this is the first time I've ever presented with a cheer squad behind me, but um, it's very good. So, um, <laughs> thanks, John. Thanks, John. Um, so, so my presentation today um, is based uh, on a paper that was recently published as a chapter um, in, in a book on small island state economies, and that's a picture um, of the book there. It's edited by Professor Lino um, Briguglio, um, who many of you will be familiar with. He's a, a well-known economist working um, on small island state issues. Um, I was asked when I wrote that chapter to focus on small island states generally, not just in the Pacific. So, so that's what the focus of that paper is. That said, I'll try to focus most um, of my comments today uh, on the Pacific, um, and that's actually the region I'm most familiar with in any case, so that's quite easy to do. Um, <clears throat> you know, I know quite a few of you here. I've had an ongoing, um, I guess, research focus um, on uh, the electricity sector uh, and on um, regulation. Uh, in the electricity or the power sector um, in small island states for, for a number of years. Um, that was the focus of my, my PhD um, fieldwork um, here in Fiji about 10 years ago. Um, and that focus really arose 
Out of the fact that um, regulation is um, fundamental to how electricity is provided um, in a society. So, you know, you, you say regulation and often people's eyes glaze over. It's a fairly boring subject, but it's actually a really important um, issue. Um, you know, um, regulation is um, you know, fundamental to explaining rural electrification efforts. Um, it's uh, That's um, in the Pacific. Uh, it's fundamental to explaining why. Uh, access to electricity is so limited in a number of the, the Western Melanesian states. Um, it's fundamental to explaining energy poverty uh, throughout much of the world. And, of course, uh, renewable energy is the, the big topic these days. Um, you know, uh, regulatory arrangements are fundamental to explaining why. Some countries have uh, made big strides in their renewable energy efforts, whereas others um, have not. Um, so my presentation today is divided into three parts. Um, first, I want to discuss how electricity sector, how the electricity sector is regulated globally. Um, and uh, in doing so, I'm going to talk about some of the reforms uh, in power sector regulation that have taken place around the world um, since the 1980s. Um, I'm then going to discuss the electricity sector in small island um, states how that sector has commonly been regulated um, and how significant the global shift towards a more liberalised electricity sector, what effect that has had um, in, in small island states, uh, in, uh, including Pacific Island countries. Um, and you'll gather from my, my title, um, you know, my main argument um, in writing this paper was um, I, what I really wanted to do was to highlight how that global reform agenda has often been um, ill-suited um, to, to small island state economies. Then at the end of my presentation, in the third part, of the pres uh, the third part I'll discuss um, different ways that small island states um, can address some of the challenges um, associated with, with power sector regulation. And that discussion is actually quite relevant to regulation more generally, um, not just in the power sector. So let's begin. Um, so small island um, states have, um, as many of you will know, have led the world in establishing ambitious uh, renewable energy targets over the, over the last decade. Um, achievement of those targets has been one objective on which reform of the power sector in small island developing states has really been advocated in recent years. Um, now, those reforms draw on what is considered international best practice um, and that international best practice follows on from an earlier and quite different set of reforms that were aimed at liberalising the sector that really commenced um, in the 1980s. And I thought that given this audience is probably a fairly you know, generalist audience, so many of you won't work in the power sector, um, I thought I would just sort of explain the basic functions um, uh, in the power sector. So really you can understand the electricity sector with, with a focus, uh, well, there are basically three functions. So first of all, there's the generation or the production um, of electricity. Uh, you know, many countries that that's um, been, that has involved uh, coal-fired generation. Uh, in the Pacific, it's tended to involve um, generation from diesel generators or from heavy fuel oil. Um, but it's historically always been a centralised function. And now we're seeing that changing um, with the, the rapid drop in the price of distributed uh, energy, so solar panels and so forth, but that's how historically um, it has been. Then that electricity has to be transported to houses. So the second function of the, the electricity sector has been transmission and distribution um, of, of electricity. So in, in Australia, it's often called the poles and wires. 
The third function has been the retailing of that electricity. So when you sign up to purchase electricity um, for, from the power company, they'll, they'll offer you a whole different set of packages. Um, and it's the same as you know when you buy a mobile phone. There are a whole different. There are many different ways that you can um, buy a mobile phone. What data packages you have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so basically, three different customers, uh, three different functions, um, and that's how the the electricity that is produced is then um, given is then provided to customers. Now, the first um, electricity networks were, were fragmented. Um, they were largely developed by private firms, cooperatives, um, city councils. This is speaking globally, um, but they were then consolidated over time and that saw the emergence of state-owned utilities um, which were responsible for all three of those functions. So these were called um, uh, vertically integrated um, state-owned utilities. Um, it was deemed necessary to have all of these functions provided by the one company um, because, uh, well, for various reasons, one for the achievement of economies of scale um, and that would lower production costs. Um, ownership by the state was deemed necessary um, because for energy security reasons, um, also for the fact that this was a, a monopoly um, situation. So um, that way, um, the, if it was state-owned, there'd be less uh, abuse of the, the customer um, through market power. Um, and then, of course, in many countries, there were non-commercial objectives of providing um, electricity, um, things like rural electrification. So it was, it was thought that um, one entity would be the best way uh, to, to um, push this forward. Consensus um, around that model, though, began to break down in the 1980s, and there was a push, um, which is part of a broader move towards deregulation, liberalisation. Um, there was a move to dismantle these vertically integrated monopolies in the electricity sector and to introduce competition, uh, and in some cases, to privatise um, those power sector utilities. Um, and really, that, that's what I call the first generation um, of reform in the electricity sector. And um, the idea was to push towards competition both in the, the generation function of the electricity sector and in the retail function. Um, so the idea was you would have various producers of electricity who would compete with one another and they would sell that electricity to the wholesale market. Um, then there would be various co uh, companies that would compete against one another in the retail sector, offering different types of packages and so forth to customers. Transmission and distribution, that doesn't lend itself to competition. It's inherently a, a monopoly. Um, so um, that was often left in the hands of the state. Um, it was on some occasions privatised, but there was always heavy regulation um, of that transmission and distribution function. Um, now, thinking about the, the um, I guess, the objectives behind these reform efforts, um, it was generally about um, improving efficiency uh, and lowering um, electricity prices. Um, so reforms first uh, took off in developed countries, but there were some developing countries that also pursued these reforms. Chile um, was often a, a, a cited example of successful um, reform in this area. Um, and then later in the, uh, the late 1980s, when Latin America had its debt crisis, um, the, the World Bank uh, in particular, um, some of the other multilateral banks, um, pushed reforms on these countries as part of structural adjustment loans. So you saw quite drastic reforms um, in Latin America as well as in developed countries. But in developing countries, there, there were additional objectives behind um, the pursuit of, of liberalisation. So it wasn't just about efficiency or cost. Um, 
there were deep-seated problems in the provision of electricity in many developing countries. Um, so often their utilities were plagued by poor management. Um, often prices were below the cost of providing that electricity, and that meant that the electricity utilities were in this constant um, state of financial crisis, um, and they were dependent on government periodic government bailouts to, to keep supplying electricity at all. Um, so it was thought that liberalisation would help to solve these problems. Um, the other objective was that in, in many, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, um, there was a large um, unelectrified um, population, uh, and it was thought, well, it was thought that they needed new investment, and the way to bring about that investment was to pursue this liberalisation model. So, how did it play out? Well, the full suite of reforms wasn't um, actually implemented in most countries. So, um, Besant Jones um, uh, did a survey of this in 2006. They found that only 19 countries had actually pursued this full customer choice model, which is the most um, I guess the, the fullest extent um, of that reform agenda, um, and almost all of these countries were situated in Europe or in Latin America. This, the prior um, model, the vertically integrated monopoly model, that remained in place in 79 countries <laughs> around the world. So, um, uh, Gratwick and, and Eberhard, they conclude that the standard um, model of first-generation power sector reform um, is actually a bit of a misnomer, and that in, instead what has happened in most developing countries is that um, what they find is a confused and contested policy space um, that arises from the fact that the, that incumbent monopoly state-owned utility remains intact, it remains dominant, but you have private sector independent power producers who've also been invited into the market to supply electricity, um, and often against opposition from the state-owned utility. Now, um, that um, in 52 countries, um, this was the, the situation. So you had the state-owned monopoly utility, complete control of transmission and distribution, also the retail function. In the generation space, generally the state-owned monopoly utility continued to um, hold uh, considerable market power. It was the dominant player, but then you had independent power producers supplying power as well. Um, and I guess that failure to implement the full suite of what were called you know, best practice reforms, um, there are a number of explanations for that. Um, often liberalisation was politically contentious. Um, you had a lot of opposition from union movements, for example, right around the world. Um, in developing countries, there were special reasons for opposition, and that was the, the fact that electricity prices were often subsidised by government. And so liberalisation, to, to its full extent, would actually mean higher prices for consumers. So not surprisingly, there was opposition um, from the populations there. Um, you also had a, a, a number of really problematic reform um, experiences. So probably the most famous one is the experience in California um, in um, late 1990s, 2000. You might know the brown date, actually. Yeah, the brownouts. Um, and, and that really was a case where the wholesaler, so the generation company, just had too much um, market power. It wasn't regulated properly. Um, and so they intentionally undersupplied the market in a bid to increase prices. Um, and, you know, that just had absolutely enormously damaging implications for the California economy. Um, 
More broadly, though, um, and in less extreme examples, um, I think it's fair to say that the full liberalisation agenda didn't really achieve um, what it set out to do. So the two countries where power sector reform was often pointed to, uh, was often identified as having been successful were um, the United Kingdom and Chile. Um, and in both countries, power prices actually didn't decline. Um, so efficiency did improve, um, performance of the utility did improve, um, number of, um, of blackouts and so forth, they were reduced, but power prices did not decline. And really, that was a case where the, um, the utilities involved um, reaped the benefits um, of those regulatory reforms. <coughs> now, advocacy for power sector reform hasn't disappeared, um, but it has changed focus since that period. Um, and I would say it's become more modest in, in its objectives. So um, the, that first generation of reforms that I've just been talking about that largely took place in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and uh, as I said, it was largely focused on dismantling that, that traditional power supply model where you had one company um, doing all those functions. Nowadays, um, advocates for power sector reform um, are more likely to push for independent regulation um, of the, the sector. And um, I call this a second wave um, of, power reform, of power sector reform. And that second generation reform typically has a number of objectives. Um, one is to ensure that retail electricity prices reflect costs of supply. Uh, and this is in response to that situation that I described earlier, where in, in a lot of developing countries, you have power prices that are below the cost of supply, which contributes to, to blackouts and so forth. Um, a second objective is ensuring that feed-in tariffs are sufficiently high so as to um, attract independent power producers. So feed-in tariffs are simply what the, the dominant power utility pays those independent power producers for the electricity that they supply um, to the grid. Um, and in, in many countries, including Fiji, in fact, um, the, those feed-in tariffs have been far below what they should be. Um, and that has really stymied um, the investments by independent power producers. It's only where you have an independent regulator who comes in and says, no, you have to pay this much for the electricity um, that these independent power producers are supplying. It's only then that you can really get um, proper uh, private sector investment um, in the sector. Okay. And actually, a third objective, um, and this is only really pursued in some cases, but is the use of regulatory mechanisms to incentivise private sector investment with the view of help, helping, uh, helping to widen um, access to electricity. So this is that rural electrification agenda. So a, a problem with the, the traditional model was that prices were so low, they were below cost, that the, the utility had no money to expand its electricity network. So effectively, you had this very regressive subsidy that benefited people that were on the electricity grid, so they would tend to be urban consumers, um, and it benefited those that consumed a lot of electricity most, and they would tend to be wealthy households. So it was a very regressive um, subsidy. So this, so independent uh, regulation has come to be the the the, the new best practice um, regulatory model. Um, how am I going to do for time? You're at sixteen thirty. Okay, I will speed up. Um, so turning to, to small island states, um, I guess the two defining features of small island states is um, their small size and also the absence of land borders um, with neighbouring states. What that means um, is that uh, that presents a number of challenges. First of all, it 
um, prevents those countries from utilities in those countries from achieving economies of scale. So electricity prices will tend to be higher. The cost of producing electricity will tend to be higher in those uh, small island states. Although again, that is gradually changing with the move towards um, distributed energy. Um, the other challenge is that these are isolated networks. You can't import power from neighbouring networks when you have no supply. So that, that um, there are a whole range of energy security implications for that, which increases the cost um, of providing electricity. Um, so in small island um, states, as was the case globally, um, electricity tended to be supplied by those vertically integrated monopolies. That first generation of reform um, made very, very little headway in small island states. Um, Fiji was one exception. Um, some of you might remember in, in 1998, um, the, uh, the um, Fiji Electricity Authority was actually um, separated into three different companies. Um, but then um, it, when the Fiji Labor Party um, was uh, elected, it reversed that decision. So it was a very short-lived um, decision. But elsewhere, there hasn't really been much impact from that first generation of reforms. And the reason is fairly obvious. Um, you know, that small scale really prevents competition in the sector. You, you, there just aren't, it's impossible for small players to achieve the economies of scale necessary. So if you were to break up the FEA into numerous power producers, it would actually increase generation costs. Um, now, in, in my paper, uh, uh, what I argue is that the, the second um, generation of power sector reforms involving independent regulation has been much more influential uh, in small island developing states. Um, and uh, really what has spurred changes in that area has been the, the pursuit of um, investments in renewable energy. Um, it, I think a lot of countries have been conscious that their, their utilities are simply unable to uh, make the investments necessary to, to achieve the ambitious renewable energy targets. Um, and so there's been a bid to um, make power pricing an independent um, decision uh, away from elected governments, generally increasing power prices. Uh, and that has both spurred private sector investment, but also provided more revenue to the state-owned utilities to then actually make the, those um, investments in renewable technologies. Um, so to the third part of my talk, um, I, I, I focus on um, some of the regulatory challenges associated with that agenda. So um, while independent regulation might be feasible in a country like Fiji, if you think about the very smallest island states like Nauru, like Tuvalu, um, independent regulation has fixed costs. Um, and it, it's a very costly undertaking to have both an electricity utility as well as an independent regulator. So I explore various um, proposals that have been made to actually address um, uh, that challenge. And I think uh, I'll just cover two now. There are really two that have been most popular. One is regional approaches. Uh, I'll finish it in, in just one minute. So one is a regional approach um, to uh, regulation. Um, so uh, an example is um, the Eastern Caribbean Regulatory Authority that um, has um, oversight over the electricity sectors of those Eastern Caribbean states. Um, in my view, 
this is unlikely to be successful in most small island states. I think there are particular reasons in the Eastern Caribbean why it has been pursued, and one is the, the similarities between um, those island states. And even in that case, it has taken a long time for this um, entity to be established. The second um, approach to addressing this challenge um, in small island states has been multi-sector regulation. So where you have a, a regulator that regulates not just the electricity sector, but a whole range of, of different sectors. I think this um, is a more, um, I think in most countries this is, is uh, probably more promising than regional regulation. Um, and already in the Pacific, we see quite a few multi-sector regulators being established. So in Fiji, uh, PNG, Vanuatu, Samoa. Even then, I think in the very smallest microstates, it's probably still too costly to establish these regulators. So um, I, in my view, where um, that traditional model, the vertically integrated model, worked well, um, and that was, the, it did work well in some cases, where governments didn't they realised that you had to have prices that cover costs. In those situations, I think that was an appropriate regulatory structure. Um, I, I, I wouldn't argue for, for independent regulation. Um, I think I'm over time, so I might just finish there, but happy to take up any of this in questions. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Matt. Uh, so our next presenter is Rio Ikari. He's a master's candidate at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. His research interests are largely focused on energy policy and economics in Asian Pacific countries. Uh, he has a background in energy industry in Japan with previous experience working for a multi-energy supplier as well as a research institute specializing in energy. He has engaged in a wide range of projects such as business development on micro cogeneration in European markets hydrogen projects in Japan, and energy outlooks in African and Southeastern Asian countries. So please help me welcome Mr. Ikari. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's a great honor for me to have this opportunity to give you a presentation at the University of the South Pacific. Today, I'd like to talk about rural electrification in Pacific Island countries. Let's get started. This is a map of Pacific Island countries. My research is focusing on these 14 countries in this region. Please allow me to call them peaks today. This is the outline. First of all, I'll talk about the context and the purpose of this research. PICs need to tackle both high renewable energy, high, sorry, high renewable energy targets for climate change and rural electrification for further development. Rural electrification with renewable energy looks like an optimal solution for PICs. However, Investment in urban areas with renewables is a more cost-effective means of achieving the targets. This is because electricity demand in rural areas is low and dispersed. Therefore, high renewable energy targets and rural electrification are not necessarily complementary. In this regard, not only I, but also other researchers have the same concern. Our research says PICs are likely to focus attention on urban areas to meet their ambitious renewable energy goals 
Another research says <laughs> that high renewable energy targets create incentives for investment in existing electricity grids, which ignore the problem of limited access to modern energy services in peaks. Overall, the recent literature suggests that in deploying renewable energy, peaks might be ignoring rural electrification. Therefore, this research will investigate donor funding energy projects. The reason why I focus on donor funding projects is that in the energy sector in peaks, foreign aid is the single most important source of investment. Then I will assess the extent to which such funding is focused on rural verification and examine whether the situation has changed over time. In other words, this research will seek to answer to the question, how do renewable energy ambitions of 14 peaks affect donor-funded rural electrification efforts? Let me introduce my methodology. A large share of the information about foreign aid for energy projects between 2013 and 2015 are extracted from a database of the Lowy Institute, which is called the Lowy Institute Pacific Aid Map, which was presented in the morning session by Jonathan and Alex. And I have sorted OG energy projects into four categories, urban power supply projects, rural electrification projects, other projects, and unspecified projects. Each major category has subcategories. Urban power supply projects have involved uh, on-grid renewable energy generation, on-grid non-renewable energy generation, and transmission and distribution maintenance projects. Rural electrification projects include off-grid renewable energy generation, off-grid non-renewable energy generation, and transmission and distribution extension projects. Other projects are categorized as for energy policy, administrative management, and capacity building. Next, let me, let me, let me show you the results. This is, the out, this is the overview of the results. The left axis indicates the amount of aid for energy projects in US million dollars. The right axis shows the percentage of total share. The total amount of foreign aid for energy projects was $232 million between 2013 and 2015. It is about 0.3% of peak's total GDP. By comparison, the military expenditure of GDP in PNG has been between 0.3 and 0.5% in recent years. The biggest spending category was on improving urban power supply. Total aid for urban power supply project was $115 million and its share was 50% of the total. At the same time, aid for rural electrification projects was also significant. Total aid for rural electrification over three years was 
48 million dollars or 21 percent of the total this is a breakdown of rural electrification projects again 84 rural electrification projects was considerable between 2013 and 2015 even though it was smaller than 84 urban power supply projects of the total funding for rural electrification aid for off-grid renewable energy generation projects was the largest subcategory amounting to 40 million dollars the remainder 8 million dollars was spent on grid extension projects there was no aid for off-grid non-renewable energy generation projects Major donors for rural electrification in this region are four countries and institutions New Zealand, Japan, the EU, and the UAE. They granted 23 million, 13 million, 8 million, and 4 million dollars respectively over the three years. These four donors provided 99% of the total aid for rural electrification projects. Major recipients of aid for rural education are eight countries between 2013 and 2015. Kiribati, Tuvalu, and Fiji received 82%, 77%, and 64% respectively. In addition, Tonga, Vanuatu, PNG, Federal States of Micronesia, and the Solomon Islands also received 45%, 43%, 30%, 25%, and 5% for each for rural electrification. Many of PICs attract foreign aid in order to tackle not only urban power supply but also rural electrification. From now on, I'd like to talk about my key analysis. I divided the 14 countries into two groups which have higher and lower electrification rates. This is because the country with lower electrification rates might concentrate only on achieving renewable energy targets in urban areas and they might ignore rural electrification. Firstly, let's look at the 10 countries with higher electrification rates. They are Cook Islands, Fiji, Marshall Islands, Federal States of Micronesia, Nau, Niue, Palau, Samoa, Tonga, and Tuvalu. In the case of the 10 countries, investment in urban power supply projects is dominant. But investment in rural electrification is also significant. Aid for urban power supply projects between 2013 and 2015 was $90 million, and its share of the total was 49%. In contrast, Aid for rural electrification was $32 million and its share was 18%. All of the electrification projects were off-grid renewable energy generation projects. There were no non-renewable energy generation projects and grid extension projects. In the countries with higher electrification rates, rural electrification with renewable energy is significantly in progress. This means they are replacing oil generators with renewable ones. Secondly, 
the four countries with lower electrification rates are Kiribati, PNG, the Solomon Islands, and Banats. In the case of the four countries, investment in urban power supply projects is dominant, but investment in rural electrification is also significant. In the <coughs> aid for Aid for urban power supply projects between 2013 and 2015 was $25 million and its share was 51%. In contrast, aid for rural electrification was $16 million and its share was 32%. In the four countries, investment in both urban power supply and rural electrification projects are significant. This is a breakdown of rural electrification projects in the four countries. The shares of off-grid renewable energy generation and grid extension were almost equal at about $8 million. The results show that the countries with lower electrification rates are focusing not only on improving urban power supply but also on rural electrification. This means that they are penetrating electricity supply in both urban and rural areas with renewable energy. Rural electrification has not been ignored in these countries. Let's move on discussion. I will talk about the current situation, situation over time and situation in the future. Currently, PICs are using 48 not only to improve urban power supply but also to enhance rural electrification. Many of the rural electrification projects are off-grid renewable energy generation projects, but some are grid extension projects. Major donors for rural electrification in this region are New Zealand, Japan, the EU, and the UAE. Their total share of rural electrification is 99%, I, I already mentioned. Major recipients of the funds are Kiribati, Tubal, Fiji, Tonga, Banat, PNG, Federal States of Micronesia, and the Solomon Islands between 2013 and 2015. In the countries with higher electrification rates, rural electrification projects are significant. This means that off-grid projects are replacing existing diesel generators with renewable ones. In the countries with lower electrification rates, rural electrification projects has an even higher proportion of total aid for energy projects. This means off-grid projects and grid extension projects are penetrating electricity nationwide. Comparison of this analysis with previous studies also suggests that foreign aid for rural electrification has increased over time. According to prior research, the cumulative amount of aid for off-grid renewable energy generation projects between 1990 and 2012 for the 23 years was $40 million. My research shows that the amount of off-grid renewable energy generation projects between 2013 and 2015 for the three years was also equal to $40 million. Furthermore, the same comparison shows that the $40 million for off-grid renewable energy generation projects was 
15% as a percentage of on-grid renewable energy generation projects. In contrast, this research shows that aid for off-grid renewable energy generation projects was 61% as a percentage of on-grid renewable energy generation projects. The weight of rural electrification clearly becomes more significant for the period in this research than that in the prior research. PICs have expanded rural electrification along with their high renewable energy targets over time. However, more foreign aid does not guarantee more aid for rural electrification. If high renewable energy targets are a motivation for more expenditure, it could be possible that aid for rural electrification declines in the future. There is also the question of what happens as renewable energy targets are met in the future. Would foreign aid shift from on-grid renewable energy generation projects to rural electrification? Or would aid for rural electrification decline along with overall aid levels? I would like to conclude suggesting three recommendations. At the moment, PICs are successfully pursuing both high renewable energy targets and rural electrification at the same time. However, there is no guarantee this will be the case in the future. PICs need to ensure that both foreign aid and domestic government spending on the energy projects are helping their people realize further development. This is the final slide. When I started my research, I faced the limited data on electricity capacity and energy consumption in Pacific Island countries. My first recommendation is that the donor and recipient governments collect and analyze data on basic or minimum demand for electricity and energy at the household level in rural areas in each country. The data collection and analysis will be useful to decide the basic electricity and energy capacity nationwide. My second recommendation is that the donor and recipient governments start collecting, accumulating, and analyzing more detailed data about the productive use of energy not only for lighting and cooking, but also for using machines and improving mobility at the household, farm, and industry levels in rural communities. This is strongly related to improving the quality of life and creating commerce and industries in rural communities. In fact, these data collection and analysis has already been conducted in some Pacific countries, including Fiji. But it has been ad hoc and not a regular exercise. Lastly, my third recommendation is that the governments in PICS allocate more resources to rural electrification, including the resources needed for the first and second recommendations most of the expenditure for rural education comes from foreign aid for now. In the future, 
Even if foreign aid is reduced due to donors' intentions, the government should keep the expenditure for rural education. Urban investments are meaningful, but rural education is also critical to pursue further development for the Pacific Island countries. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Rio. Uh, our next presenter is Ravita Prasad. Uh, Ravita is a lecturer at Fiji National University and is a PhD candidate in the Department of Physics at the University of the South Pacific. Her research interests lie in renewable energy and long-term energy planning. So let's welcome Ravita Prasad. Thank you, Nate. Um, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my presentation today is on um, the topic of uh, toward a sustainable energy future for Fiji. This is uh, part of my PhD research uh, work at uh, USP under the supervision of uh, Dr. Raturi. So an overview of the presentation. Uh, first, I'll show the Fijian demography. Uh, the current energy usage in Fiji, some of the challenges, and uh, some of uh, the uh, low carbon transformations that could be done. And uh, I'll present some results uh, from uh, the modeling work uh, that was done, and uh, some um, discussion on the way forward. Uh, so the uh, census uh, population uh, 2017, it said a um, Fiji's population is around 885,000 with an uh, average annual growth rate of 0.6%. Uh, and uh, the uh, GDP in 2016 at constant basic price of 2011 was 6.7 uh, billion and uh, the average annual growth rate for this constant uh, GDP, uh, uh, GDP at basic, uh, constant basic price was uh, 3.2, considering the data from 2011 to 2016. Now, Fiji is uh, mostly using um, uh, fossil fuel for electricity generation and uh, transport sector. So they are the major users of uh, fossil fuel. And um, this, the pro uh, this presentation is mainly focusing on how uh, we can reduce the fossil fuel consumption. So um, two sectors we are looking at is the electricity generation. There are um, four types uh, in, uh, in Fiji. Uh, one first one is the grid-based that is mainly provided uh, by Fiji, uh, sorry, uh, Energy Fiji Limited formerly known as FEA, and off-grid electrification is managed by Fiji Department of Energy. And um, there are some uh, uh, owned producers such as um, Vatukola Gold Mine and Outer Island Resorts. And we also have uh, two uh, IPPs, uh, FSC and uh, Tropic Woods, who are generating uh, electricity for their own use and then uh, exporting it to the grid, the excess electricity. The transport sector, land uh, transport, maritime and uh, domestic air transport, they are all uh, completely dependent on uh, fossil fuel. 
Uh, this slide is uh, showing on uh, the uh, electricity generation uh, from uh, uh, grid uh, connected. So uh, according to EFL, uh, major uh, sources of uh, gen for generation are uh, hydro and uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, with the uh, wind and biomass playing a small role in uh, generation. So over the years, we see that uh, the uh, percentage uh, uh, generation from uh, renewable energy sources, it uh, varies between uh, 45 and uh, around 67%. This slide is uh, showing uh, the cost of uh, using uh, burning of, uh, fossil fuel by uh, FEA, now known as EFL. So we see that uh, from uh, 2010 till now, the, uh, the cost of uh, fuel, uh, um, fossil fuel, uh, it's around uh, ranging from 130 to 180 um, Fijian million dollars. Uh, for the uh, grid electricity demand, um, the uh, demand is growing at an average rate of 4% uh, per year and uh, two, uh, two types of customers are there, residential and uh, uh, commercial and industrial. So I have uh, um, uh, compiled non-domestic uh, together, uh, commercial and industrial as non-domestic. So uh, from the overall uh, total consumption in, in, in a year, uh, the non-domestic uh, uh, customers are uh, consuming 75% uh, of the total generation. Whereas if we look at the uh, number of uh, customers that are there, so uh, from the total customer that are there, 90% uh, are domestic, but they are only consuming 25% of the total demand. For uh, fossil fuel consumption in uh, transport sector, there is no uh, publicly available sectorial data um, uh, for transport. So what we did was uh, Bureau of Statistics, they are recording the mineral fuel import in Fiji and re-export uh, every year. So we got that and we tried to uh, calculate how much is the retained import in Fiji. So this uh, slide is uh, showing that uh, uh, the major fuel that is imported is uh, diesel, uh, followed by gasoline and uh, aviation uh, turbine fuel. The uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, goal number seven for uh, affordable and clean energy three targets are there uh, to for by 2030 for universal access to affordable reliable and modern energy services and uh, an increase in the renewable energy uh, share in the uh, global energy mix and uh, doubling the rate of energy efficiency so um, from uh, uh, the census data from uh, Fiji Bureau of Statistics in uh, 2007 since 89% uh, of the population were electrified and uh, we see that uh, the latest from the latest census data it has now increased to 96% uh, of the population electrified 4% are not 
So of this electrified, uh, please note that uh, it's not only grid uh, electricity that are provided, it's all also from off-grid and some are having their own generators. For cooking fuels, again data is sourced from uh, Bureau of Statistics. In uh, 2007, uh, we see a higher share of uh, uh, wood fuel for cooking, 36%, uh, which has uh, now decreased in 2017 to 19%. And uh, the share of electric, uh, using electricity as a cooking fuel, uh, has increased from 3 to 15 percent. LPG has increased from uh, 28 to 38 percent of the households. Uh, some of the challenges to um, or threats to energy, uh, the first one is uh, natural disasters. Uh, Fiji is very susceptible to natural disasters such as uh, flooding, landslides and tropical cyclones. Over the past decade, we have uh, um, 17 cyclones, and the recent one in 2016, uh, Feb, uh, we had uh, Category 5 TC Winston, which did extensive uh, damage to uh, FEA's uh, infrastructure. So this uh, slide is just showing uh, where the, in, uh, the damage was to the FEA grid and uh, by what percentage. So we see that Rekireki, Levuka and Sabu Sabu have got had around 60 to 80% of uh, damage, um, whereas uh, Tavwaba and Korovo had 40 to 60%, while the rest had uh, less than 40% damage. Another threat is the um, high ratio of uh, fossil fuel import uh, to the total export. So using uh, the uh, import and export data from uh, uh, Bureau of Statistics, the, we had calculated that the mineral product retained import as a percentage of total exports. It uh, ranges from 20 to 60 percent. And uh, the declining trend that we see from uh, 2006 uh, till 2015 is ma mainly because of uh, the increase in the total exports value. Another uh, challenge is uh, that uh, Fiji has got many uh, small islands uh, dispersed, uh, so uh, grid electricity uh, is uh, is only provided to three, uh, sorry, four now. Uh, four islands, uh, Vitilevu, Vanvalevu, uh, Ovalau, and only in 2017, uh, uh, Tavuni has come on grid. The uh, major uh, source for cooking uh, you saw in the previous slide uh, is uh, wood fuel for remote areas. And uh, there's the challenge of uh, uh, transporting uh, uh, modern fuel, uh, kerosene or LPG from mainland to out island, uh, the transportation cost increases. Um, another challenge is that the, our transport sector, uh, land, maritime and air, are completely dependent on uh, imported fossil fuels. And uh, one of the measures that uh, uh, Fijian government has done is uh, to reduce or uh, there is no duty on hybrid vehicles. So we see a rise in uh, hybrid vehicles on Fiji roads. 
So this uh, will reduce the uh, increase the uh, fuel economy of uh, vehicles, therefore reducing the uh, gasoline consumption. But uh, uh, for biofuel use in transport sector, uh, there is none. Even though we have uh, B5 and E10 standards approved. So uh, to uh, for the modeling uh, to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel. For grid electricity generation, uh, new technologies such as uh, solar PV, wind, biomass, and hydro are considered for meeting the electricity demand uh, on the three main islands. For transport sector, uh, land uh, transport, uh, we considered uh, electric and hybrid uh, vehicles, electric buses. And uh, maritime transport, we considered the, the factor of if there is uh, uh, proper hull cleaning and uh, hull coating and propeller polishing uh, to the existing uh, vessels that are there and but there wasn't any measure considered for aviation the tool that we used was a long range energy alternative uh, planning system leap and uh, the uh, for modeling the base year is taken to be 2015 or 2016 and year is 2040 and uh, uh, for the data input into the model, mostly uh, it was obtained from uh, EFL's uh, annual, uh, annual report or from uh, uh, Bureau of Statistics and uh, where some data were not uh, there in the annual report, then uh, we had personal communication with the EFL staff. Uh, for transport data, the uh, registered vehicles and uh, registered vessel numbers were obtained from uh, Land Transport Authority and uh, Maritime Safety Authority of Fiji. Uh, for aviation, uh, uh, aviation data, Bureau of Statistics, they had uh, the uh, passenger activity uh, showing on their website, so that was used. Uh, for uh, land transport and maritime transport uh, activity data, um, it wasn't available to us, so we did a survey, a small survey, and got indicative values for the uh, trans uh, land and maritime transport activity. So this is the graph showing the uh, demand projections in the future. We assumed a 3.5% uh, uh, growth rate annual for uh, grid electricity demand. Now to meet the increasing demand, uh, uh, we added uh, new uh, technologies. So uh, mostly you see that uh, most of the new technologies are added after 2027, 20, uh, uh, after that. So it's because the current generation capacity that are there is able to meet the demand till 2026 and then after that uh, to keep the planning reserve margin uh, at um, 40 percent then the new technologies are added in so the total investment cost from uh, 2016 uh, to 2040 it's uh, around uh, 782 uh, million dollars us and uh, this is uh, the cost that we took was the uh, capital cost uh, so many dollars per kilowatt the investment cost that uh, was uh, uh, indicated in IRENA report for uh, different technologies
so this is uh, showing how the generation is uh, when the new technologies are put in. Uh, we see that um, the renewable energy share in uh, generation is uh, increasing to 77% uh, by 2040. Uh, this is uh, just one of the scenarios and uh, it uh, considered uh, using a very conservative uh, additional capacities but uh, no grid storage was uh, considered. This slide is uh, showing the energy demand for the transport sector, uh, business as usual and uh, mitigation uh, uh, scenario. So we see that uh, in 2016 we estimate that the energy demand from uh, transport, land, maritime and air altogether is around uh, 15 million gigajoules, so 15 petajoules, uh, which increases to 21 million gigajoules by 2040. And if we uh, put in measures of uh, introducing electric vehicles, electric buses, uh, hybrid vehicles and um, uh, increasing the uh, fuel economy of uh, uh, maritime vessels, uh, then the demand it decreases from uh, 36 uh, million gigajoules in 2040 to 30 um, million gigajoules in 2040. So that's... Um, 14% decrease. Um, uh, this slide is uh, showing the total energy requirement from uh, uh, grid electricity and uh, transport all combined. So we see uh, that the demand is now uh, growing from uh, 20, 20 million gigajoules to 36 million gigajoules and um, the um, share of uh, renewable energy in the total energy requirement is uh, just 8% by 2040. So this is be, uh, business as usual. When we introduce the uh, low carbon uh, measures uh, that uh, I had explained earlier, then uh, the renewable share increases to around uh, 22%. Uh, total emissions in uh, 2016, it was estimated that the emission is uh, around uh, 1,300 gigagrams of uh, carbon dioxide uh, equivalent, uh, which uh, increases to 2,400 uh, gigagrams of uh, CO2 equivalent by 2040 when no uh, low carbon transformation measures are taken. So when in the mitigation scenario, we see significant decrease in emissions and uh, the emissions then uh, only increases to 1,700 gigagrams by 2040. So there's a 30% decrease in emissions by 2040. Uh, some uh, way forward. Uh, for increasing the uh, for decreasing fossil fuel uh, consumption in Fiji is uh, to increase the public private partnership uh, World Bank group defines uh, PPP as a long-term contract between a private party and a government entity for providing a public asset or service in which the uh, private party bears significant risk and management uh, responsibility 
and uh, is uh, paid for their performance. So uh, Fiji uh, should uh, actively look at uh, ways of uh, increasing uh, PPP to have more renewable energy projects coming in. Uh, another one is uh, change in customer behavior. That's the foremost thing that should uh, happen uh, for grid electricity. Uh, if we look at grid electricity, then uh, the, there should be energy efficiency measures and conservation me measures taken in by in industrial customers and uh, commercial customers because they are the major consumers of uh, electricity. So uh, energy efficiency measures uh, must be taken in. And uh, of course, uh, domestic uh, customers, households, uh, they should uh, be uh, using their energy wisely. For transport sector, uh, the change in behavior that would be required is, uh, most of the people wouldn't want to do this, uh, but uh, uh, opting from using their private vehicles and uh, going on public transport if they want to reduce um, fuel consumption. And uh, um, the way they drive uh, their vehicles, uh, um, uh, how they maintain their vehicles, all those are very important in, uh, in, in increasing uh, the fuel economy of their uh, vehicles. But uh, for this uh, behavioral change, uh, there, there should be a great deal of awareness creation and of course it's going to take a lot of time. Uh, Fiji is moving in the right direction by preparing new building standards. Uh, it has a uh, minimum energy performance uh, standards and labeling program, EPSEL. It was done in 2014. Uh, there is introduction of uh, hybrid vehicles. And uh, Fijian government is also uh, planning for introduction of electric vehicles. Uh, we can also set up uh, risk uh, mitigation facilities uh, because, as noted by Pathan, uh, and others, they report that because of the absence of uh, uh, these risk mitigation facilities in developing countries, there is a lack of flow of uh, finance for low carbon energy investments. So in Fiji, there can be uh, introduction of some kind of uh, new insurance product for uh, renewable energy uh, projects, which uh, can cover natural disasters. Uh, uh, past resource data for wind and solar should be studied in detail to ensure reduction in the resource supply risk for energy conversion. Um, for biomass uh, resource, there should be long-term contracts with the resource suppliers uh, to reduce the supply chain risk. Um, um, established and bankable contractors Contractor for construction, it minimizes the risk of a project uh, not meeting its uh, specification and there should be conducive policies and incentive uh, framework uh, which uh, reduces the risk of overall uh, sustainable energy market development. Uh, another way to reduce uh, risk would be uh, stakeholder uh, capacity building and development. Uh, so it, it can be for all uh, different uh, stakeholders uh, from landowners uh, to the uh, government department uh, um, um, uh, officials, 
to even to the ministers to the financing institutions and um, the uh, the technicians at the technician level for um, uh, grid based uh, uh, electricity generation there should be credible feed in uh, tariff uh, Fiji currently has uh, no structure for feed-in tariff for electricity based from different sources of electricity. There is a generic that uh, any IPP that comes in is given just a 33.08 cents uh, uh, wet exclusive price per unit and uh, it is expected to boost uh, uh, IPP but uh, we don't uh, see that happening that much. But uh, there is, uh, for solar, uh, this rate 33.08, it's only given to 24-7 energy providers. Uh, intermittent uh, energy sources such as solar, they get much less. Uh, so another uh, way, uh, way forward would be to strengthen uh, the institutions and uh, government departments that support uh, sustainable energy development. Um, the, uh, the institutions that are directly involved in, uh, in the energy sector and uh, the non-energy sector institutions such as the land trust board finance uh, institutions, uh, licensing of new business approvals and uh, other necessary departments, they should be adequately staffed and financed. and. Uh, uh, the work done by the different uh, departments that are directly involved in the energy sector should have an integrated approach so their actions would be more efficient, effective and transparent and more coordinated. And uh, to have a complete picture of the energy scene, uh, there needs to be a national data repository where all energy related uh, data are collected and uh, accessible to stakeholders and investors. Thank you. Thank you, Ravita. Uh, we have uh, about 15 minutes for Q&A, so if you have a question to ask, go ahead and uh, raise your hand and give you an opportunity to let us know your name, your organization, who, whoever you're representing, and uh, who you're addressing on this. Any questions? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, who I represent, I represent myself. Donnie Defertas. Um, actually, of interest, I was the first multi sector regulator in Samoa. Yeah. Um, I also was involved in the Caribbean in the regional regulatory body for ICT, not electricity. And for that reason, for Matthew, have you considered? that there may be other options for regulation of the sector. I said because the regional regulatory approach in the Pacific is difficult. The reason why the Caribbean and the small island states was able to succeed is that they have an established history of cooperation. They have established bodies, regional bodies, so centralized sector that functions. And uh, I don't recommend repeating in the Caribbean. 
in the Pacific. The multi-sector regulator, however, in the case of Samoa, and I'll get back to that in a while, is a possible approach. Again, the issue raised for the Tuvalu, Nauru's, Noe, that, that's a separate discussion for the time being. But there has been another approach based on the ICT regional regulator in the OECS, the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States in the Caribbean, where you have a centralized body and you have them without <coughs> overstepping on the sovereignty of the nations, looking at providing the economic, technical, and the other um, required uh, resources for independent regulation. So that perhaps is something, and we could discuss offline. The, the main issue we found in Samoa, North American Samoa, as they said, the real Samoa. <laughs> they say not me. Fair enough. And um, it's related to the question raised about the feed-in tariff. You have a dilemma. The donor agencies have the donor agendas, and they don't necessarily coincide with countries' agendas. For instance, you have, in the case of Samoa, the ADB lending them 100 million plus, which is not reflected in years because it's prior to that period, to refurbish the fossil fuel generation plant. Yeah. So that 100 million US has to be reflected in the tariff, right? Yes, yeah, somebody has a favorite, so it's reflected in the tariff. Now the regulators told that, uh, what's it? The affordable clean energy, emphasis on affordable for the rural areas. But then you have to be bearing the burden of the cost of production, which includes the capital expenditure of 100 million. And then on top of that, the government wants 100% renewable. Nobody did it, it's ridiculous. I think it's 2020 something. So, so they can't meet. So you begin to see the problem. And then you have the renewable energies coming, and they all want to pay to the highest rate. I apologize, I have to ask. We're a little tight on time. Would you mind kind I'm of consolidating? Okay, thank you. Yeah. I'm finished. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Otherwise, I could go on and on. <laughs> Was there a specific question in that, by the way? No, no, it's sure? a comment for him to consider the okay. option. For yeah, I'm, I'm happy to respond, but do you want to take several questions? Or? Uh, what, you want to do a quick response to that? Maybe with another. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, do you have a question as well? Um, yes, uh, I'd like to thank Matt for remembering the 1998 uh, uh, introduction of the deregulation of electrification in Fiji. Um, I would like to ask uh, the lady about the, the grid electricity demand. Most of your things were 16 upwards, but uh, going downwards. Uh, that's one. And the second question is, uh, why didn't you take the regulatory issues on board of your presentation, especially for Fiji, under the new FE Act, uh, because the uh, uh, regulatory issues and the political will is something that's uh, very core in the, 
Electrification. Thank you. So, are there any other questions? We can get one or two more in and we can answer them in sequence. Yes, please. I'm uh, Humphrey Chang, uh, private sector. Um, we did not hear uh, the outcome of uh, the Zambo generation plant there between Singatoka and Nandi. Uh, there's going to be a, a quite a, a huge saving, but there's no mention of that uh, being made. The other thing is that um, uh, my friend uh, William is sitting on the other side of the table, did not come up with it. But I hear from him that whilst government is, wants to preserve or, uh, or, or don't spend too much for money on fossil fuel, his company is being refused by the EFL to install solar. That's uh, something that I, I, I am very disappointed to hear. Is there something like that? Uh, or William can uh, testify? I already said it's a regulatory issue. Okay. Let's do another. We'll go ahead and we'll answer this in a minute. Let's take one more there. Yeah. Um, my name is uh, Xavier with USB. Um, I have a question for Mr. Ikori. Yes. Uh, you talk about foreign aid um, in um, electrification. Uh, my question is specific to um, what's your opinion on in terms of the role of the private sector? I don't know if that's within the scope of your work. Um, the reason why I ask this question in terms of private sector and rural electrification because I mean the work of um, Dr. Matt, uh, Professor Arturia, they, they tend to um, <clears throat> highlight that most of the aid that's towards um, electricity or the energy sector in the Pacific tends to focus on um, large-scale um, infrastructure. So, <clears throat> uh, so what what is your opinion on the role of um, foreign aid in that space in terms of um, encouraging private sector participation towards um, rural electrification. And my second question is uh, to Ms. Ravita. It's kind of linked to Mr. Mr. Ikari's um, work. When we talk, uh, look at one of um, Fiji government's push towards um, um, reforming, so to speak, the, um, the energy sector is towards you know, rural electrification. And um, the issue that I'm trying to raise here is that when you provide electricity to rural people, I'm not saying that it's bad, but you in itself create a demand. Yeah? You mentioned changing consumer behavior in terms of trying to reduce demand. But when people have electricity, they tend to go and buy appliances. Yeah? Um, the question that I'm trying to raise is um, awareness the only solution or is there other option in terms of trying to deal with demand when we're moving towards uh, rural electrification? Thank you. Thank you, sir. So, Ravita, the last question is for you. You want to start? Uh, for uh, rural electrification, uh, what uh, Fiji Department of Energy is doing is uh, they know that once uh, the people they get electricity, they, the demand is going to increase. So, at the moment, they have diesel generators and uh, uh, solar home systems. So. Uh, now what they are planning to do is introduce a 
solar PV hybrid system which has got uh, solar PV panels as well as uh, diesel generators with battery storage. So that is going to cater for the demand increase because uh, one of the uh, uh, SDG is uh, to have uh, universal access to modern uh, energy fuels. So that's what uh, off-grid uh, Department of Energy is planning to do. And um, uh, for uh, your, why didn't I consider regulatory issues? Based on the solar system and the new regulatory issues <laughs> on the supply of uh, solar system. This uh, this work is uh, mainly dealing with the um, how how the uh, fossil fuel consumption is going to be reduced and what technologies can be put in. So uh, if uh, uh, in one uh, one of my slides uh, when I was showing the additional capacities that can be put into the grid is uh, 34 megawatts of solar PV by 2027. So um, it is uh, because. To diversify uh, the uh, energy supply mix for the generation, uh, just depending on hydro and fossil fuel is uh, not uh, going to be good. So to diversify the supply for energy security purpose, it's very, uh, essential that we move into solar. And uh, solar is one of the technologies whose uh, cost over the past decade has significantly decreased by 70% or so. So um, um, I'm not uh, much focusing on regulatory issues. Uh, Dr. Rathuri, if you want to add in? I don't know, like the other speakers here, but uh, I just wanted to say Fiji has been slow on uh, solar side. While some of the countries like uh, Samoa is already doing 14 megawatt. And there is no reason why Fiji should not have more than 30 megawatt at the moment without disturbing any because grid stability and all those things come in. But Fiji can straight away go into this. So, because I think Fiji has been very confident with this hydropower and we are being kind of relying on that sector for too long and it is high time that uh, we change our strategies and, and nobody is going to go stop solar. You will see that in coming years, uh, solar would be the mainstay besides hydro. And just a second point on the uh, rural electrification, uh, the demand increasing, our, uh, we always say that electricity for what? Energy for what? It is not only for watching TV and just having lights, that's fine. But unless it, it creates jobs, unless it creates you know, some kind of employment, uh, only then it is useful, only then it is sustainable. So all these uh, donor-funded projects will be sustainable only if people are able to pay. And they will be able to pay if they are able to get some jobs. So I think it's, it's not just electricity part. We have to look at the whole, you know, whole picture, big picture, and then only these, these things will become sustainable. Thank you. Rio, would you like to address any Thank questions? You. Thank you very much for giving me a question. The, uh, uh, your question is, uh, what are the roles of Fournier to encourage private sector investment in rural electrification? That's right. Okay. Uh, I think it's very related to regulatory framework Dr. Matt mentioned. Uh, it's about generation uh, transmission and distribution and retail framework and uh, it's uh, related to the uh, regulatory framework uh, nationwide uh, as a whole I think <laughs> so Dr. Matt <laughs> could you give me some uh, comments about the 
uh, rules of Fourier uh, uh, to encourage verification further. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. So I guess I um, I think I presented on this last year actually last year's update, um, and uh, so that presentation was on. The, not so much on the quantities of foreign aid, but rather on the nature of foreign aid in the energy sector. Um, and in that um, presentation, um, I was rather critical of a lot of the big donor-funded infrastructure um, projects in the energy sector, because in my view, they could be funded um, by the private sector were an appropriate regulatory structure um, put in place. And, and uh, not in all countries, but, but, but certainly in Fiji, uh, that's my view. Um, and I think that aid would be better spent on ensuring that the regulatory environment um, is appropriate. And there, have, there has been vast improvement in Fiji relative to the case in you know, 2001, there was no independent regulator. Um, and it took several years for, for the regulator to actually come in and set um, prices that, that were appropriate. But still, I think there's a lot more that could be done. Um, yeah, sorry. No, you, you go, Ria. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, excuse me. Just one minute. The other thing is that we have also in the Pacific, the Pacific Power Association. Mm. Pacific Power is able to use, and uh, maybe you guys can communicate with them. But on the regulatory issue, it's really important. Without the regulatory, there is no reality. Yeah. Thank you. But I mean, the Pacific Power Association is effectively a club of the utilities. So, um, you know, it's, it can't mandate that reforms take place. Um, and uh, the issue of reform really is a government responsibility. So the utilities operate within that environment. Um, and often they themselves are pushing for reform, but it's the governments at the end of the day that need to, to undertake those reforms. Political will to do Matt, do you have any other uh, responses to, uh, to finish us off? Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, apologies. I I prepared this presentation late last night, and so I totally stuffed up the time. So I'm sorry. Um, I on the the regional regulation. I in the paper I do consider um, the, the um, what you talk about. So so that is. Um, having a regional, um, I guess, technical facility that provides advice um, on pricing and so forth. Um, I mean, in my view, it's it, the that can work, but you still need government, the government willpower to accept that pricing. And, you know, the, the issue is that electricity prices are politically sensitive. Um, and, you know, you, you look at Fiji, when did Fiji increase its power prices so that they reflected the cost of supply? It only happened... Um, after the coup, when you had a military government in place. So, you know, I think that tells you something. Um, you, you need a government that is strong um, at the time uh, and uh, willing to, to push this as, as an agenda. So I think that the regional approach will always um, be vulnerable to political sensitivities. Um, on the, the point about just the different objectives of, of donors, governments and utilities, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and I think the, you know, these 100% renewable targets that we've seen throughout the Pacific, they're political targets established by governments and, and they're not based in reality a lot of the times. And often utilities are very um, sceptical and resistant to them. Um, and yeah, I, it's it's very problematic for a range of reasons. But again, you only need to look at the Fiji case where they had a hundred. No, I think it was ninety percent. I still would know a ninety percent renewable target by twenty fifteen. Then they extended it by two or three years. Then they pushed it back again. It's, it just keeps getting pushed back because it's not a realistic target, um, and there's no pathway to actually achieving um, that target. 
Um, and maybe just just one point, if if I may, on on your paper overview. I think that was really interesting. Um, I thought uh, maybe one thing to consider might be uh, you. I think you mentioned that your the leap model doesn't include um, storage. Um, yeah, and, and in my view, that's sort of a really important gap because, um, as as Atul mentioned, um, you know, I think the future worldwide is solar. Um, you know, ten years ago, people were talking about wind, but now it, the solar has pricing has come down so far. Um, and the key thing to make that viable is the storage issue. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be batteries that might be pumped storage as the option. But I think that that's a really important thing to investigate. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate everybody having the time to come here, and thank you for the presenters. I think we're butting right up against tea time, so I think we'll go ahead and break. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.